0: Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you suffer from MCE? For some of you, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But for a great many of our young people today, main character energy is something that has become part and parcel to their lives. In fact, it has become uh, the subject of a great many articles and news reports because it is big with people 30 years and under. It's an approach, it's a perspective upon life that says that you are the most important character in the grand story of humanity. You are the the star of the show. Uh, Many have written about this, and in some of the writings we see, inspired primarily by a TikTok video from Ashley Ward that went viral in 2020, the term is a social media slang for approaching everything as the central protagonist or main character. Influers like Britta Grace uh, Thorpe and Yasmin Shahid have championed it as a way of taking charge and living life to its fullest. And it could be as simple as dancing in public and not caring what others think to running down the street in the city and knowing everyone's looking at you. Inc. Magazine said this, For those unfamiliar with the concept, main character energy of one's life is a notion that involves individuals, principally young ones, thinking of themselves as the main character or protagonist in their own life story. Instead of being content to see themselves as supporting characters with the action taking place around them, or worse, to them, they play the lead role, actively taking control of their lives, putting their wants, their needs, their desires first. According to Y-Pulse survey, 55% of millennials and Gen Zs think of themselves as the main characters In their lives Another one put it this way And he said this is how you are to understand it The world's big Zoom further out The universe is even more expansive Contemplating your place As one of 8 billion people On a relatively small planet can be scary In spite of all this You can still reclaim your own narrative From the cold indifference of the universe All you need is a little so called Main character energy What is it? It's when the cameras are trained on you. And people should be lucky to be a part of your story. You dress how you want. You act how you want. You decide what you want to do with your life. There's so much more than always being at the whim of someone else's decisions, hoping that someone else sees value in you, overthinking other people's relation, or, uh, opinions of you, and finally it involves our relationships. Yes, I said it. Your life is made better by the presence of someone joining the story you've already written and are already the main character in. Listen, main character energy says that you're literally in charge. Not just of the decisions you make, the people you date, the friends you have, but the very definition of what makes you and your life great. Young and old, all of us struggle with main character energy. We are secondary characters who want to be in the limelight, to be in the spotlight. In the New York Times article that I quoted from, they highlighted that there were some characters within movies who played secondary roles, but because of the energy they brought, because of how they viewed themselves, even though they were secondary in the author's intent, they stole the show just as we should. Cue Aladdin. Where the genie, a secondary character, becomes the highlight of the show. In the Pirates of the Caribbean, Captain Jack Sparrow, a relatively small character in the storyline, because of the energy he brings, he becomes the star of the show. Iron Man in the Marvel series, though a secondary character, because of the energy he brought to the screen, he becomes a main character. Listen to me my friends this is nothing new every man woman and child since the garden of eden has always played a secondary part in god's meta narrative in god's story God is the main character. God is the one who receives the spotlight. But here's the problem, every one of us has MCE, main character energy. We want to take the spotlight off of God and put it on ourselves. The Bible doesn't call this MCE, it calls it pride, arrogance, and hubris. This summer we have been looking at the lives of these 12 disciples. These individuals that God called, that Jesus called to be his closest and first followers. And we've been looking to the lives of each and every one of these individuals and we come to the life of James. James who was a part of the inner circle of Jesus. James who was one of the first to be called by Jesus. And James's big issue, James' greatest struggle is that he had main character energy. Though he was called to follow Jesus, we are going to see in two episodes where James longs to be the star of the show, where James and others around him long for him to have the spotlight, to have first place. But as we've learned in our scripture reading this morning, it is Jesus alone who deserves preeminence. It is Jesus alone who gets the limelight. It is Jesus alone who is to get all of the press, and we get the great opportunity to follow him. And when we start mixing that up, when we start trying to make it about us, we miss out on great good, but even greater than that, we miss out on giving God glory in and through our lives. So let's learn about this, James, and how we can redirect and how we can be transformed by Jesus Christ who wants us to see life through him. James, as I said, was the son of Zebedee. If you were here a couple weeks ago, you learned a lot about James's younger brother, John. Pastor Steve shared a lot about that, so I won't spend a lot of time there, but just for review and those who weren't there, James and his brother John lived not too far from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. They lived in an area named Capernaum at the very top of the Sea of Galilee. They were fishermen. In fact, Zebedee, their dad, was one of the most prominent fishermen. He had one of the largest businesses, it would seem, uh, in the area. There's many commentaries and scholars that believe Peter, the apostle of Jesus, may have been one of the hired hands and fishermen of Zebedee's business. James and John are called by Jesus in Mark chapter one. In fact, if you have your Bible, i just urge you turn to the Gospels this morning of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we'll be in each of them this morning as we look at him. Uh, but in Mark chapter one, we are told that they are with their dad when Jesus calls them passing along the sea of Galilee starting in Mark chapter 1 verse 16 Jesus saw Simon and Andrew that's Peter and Andrew and the brother of Simon casting a net into the sea and they were fishermen and Jesus said follow me and I'll make you fishers of men and immediately they left their nets and followed him And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately Jesus called them, and they left their father in the boat with the hired servants and followed Jesus. Now, a couple of things we need to know about James. One, it is my conclusion that James and his younger brother, John, may have been the youngest of the disciples. Most of the disciples are in their 20s or 30s, peers of Jesus, whereas I believe James and John are teenagers, and here's why. Number one, every time that James is spoken of, he's always spoken of as a son of Zebedee. That's what we do with young people. We identify young people with their dad. Growing up in this church, as I did, I was not known as Tim, I was known as Bill's son. And it wasn't until I became an adult and in many ways became a father of my own that I was no longer Bill's son, but now I'm Noah, Josh, and Luke's dad. You see, we many times as young people are defined or described by our parents. The second reason why I think they're young and why we need to see them as young is we're gonna have an episode here where James' mom is gonna come to Jesus with a request. And it will seem altogether odd that a grown man's mom will show up in front of other grown men and ask a question like James's mom is going to ask. It makes a ton more sense if James is a teenager and his helicopter mom comes and, and on behalf of her teenage son advocates to Jesus for something. The reason why I'm bringing this up is if we see James as young, we'll understand why he is the way he is. It makes a lot of sense. If we were to put a name or a word behind James, this is what John MacArthur says, and I appreciate his sentiments here. If there's a key word that applies to the life of the Apostle James, it's passion. From the little we know about him, it's obvious that he was a man of ardent fervor and intensity. In fact, Jesus gave James and John a nickname, Boanerges, Say that with me. Boanerges. You always wondered how to say that, right? Boanerges. What it means is they were the sons of thunder. That defines James' personality in very vivid terms. He was zealous, thunderous, passionate, and fervent. Do you know anybody like that? I and mean, These are excitable people. These are big people, big personality people. These are driven people. And some of you have yourself married to a James. Maybe yourself are a James, maybe your kids, maybe one of or two of them are Jameses. They run hot, they're passionate. They love passionately and yes, they hate passionately. There's no middle ground with them. There's no lukewarmness. In them, James is this kind of guy. James is a lot like Old Testament great men like Elijah, and, and and others, and New Testament individuals like John the Baptist. These fervent, ardent, passionate people. James, because he was a part of the inner circle of Jesus, would experience some awesome things. And in Matthew 17, James with Peter and John would experience the transfiguration of Jesus when Jesus would go onto the top of the mountain and then ascend into uh, the sky and appear with Moses and Elijah. Peter, James, and John were the only ones that would see that. How about when Christ would display his power in raising Jairus' daughter from the dead? Peter, James, and John were the only three that would see that in Mark 5, 37 and then there were private discussions that Jesus had with Peter, James and John, as recorded in Mark 14:33. So here is this guy, this passionate guy, who is up and close and personal with Jesus. And we've got to ask the question this morning: What, what makes him tick? And his passion? It's passion. And what I want to do this morning is look at this passion that James had for life and for himself and then for Jesus. And I want to do so by asking us two questions by being reminded of what James teaches us. And number one, that is who we are. Write that down in your outlines. This is about who we are. Because if we're really honest this morning, There's a bit of James in all of us. Now you would say, wait a minute, I'm not an extrovert, I'm not a big ego, big personality individual, I'm pretty quiet, I'm mousy, I'm introverted, but here's the thing. There's a bit of James in each of us because all of us have passions. All of us get excited about something. All of us dream and hope for things. All of us have passion, a zeal for a great many things. In fact, one of the ways you can really get to know a person is to ask them two questions about their passions. One, what gets you up in the morning? That is, what are you most excited about? And number two, what irritates you the most? You see, passion drives us to the good and it frustrates us with the bad, and you can learn a lot about a person by asking those two questions. James was a passionate individual, which would lead him in the best of times to some great places, and in the worst of times, to very difficult and sad ones. Well, what do we need to know about passions? Let's understand this first of all. Let's look at three things about passions. Number one, our passions can be good. Our passions can be good. The Bible speaks of passion in a couple different ways. It calls it appetites, desires, and passion. It has been said that action speaks louder than words, but desires and passions speak loudest. Why? Because that which we desire will always lead us to where we're going to go. It's going to drive us. Now, amidst what, what theologians call the imago Dei, that is that you and I are created in the image and likeness of God, Inherent within that creation, every man, woman, and child has been born with a capacity to hunger, desire, to have appetites. But unlike any other part of creation, not only do we have these hungers and appetites and desires and passions, but God has given us a God-given ability for us to determine how we're going to achieve those things, how we are going to satisfy those desires. John Bunyan, the great writer of the classic Pilgrim's Progress in a sermon, said this about our passions, desires, and appetites. He says, they are hunters, hunters. That is their job, they're out hunting for that which will fill us. So one commentator in the modern day said this, your passions, your desires, your hungers, are stalking through the cornfields in boots, camo overalls, and blaze orange hats as a fitting reminder that our restless hearts are in search of pleasures. They're on the lookout. They know that we're missing something, and your hunger and your pleasures and your uh, desires pursue something or someone to fill that. So they're out looking searching for that thing that will satisfy. Now I want to tell you this, and don't ever forget this, all of that is good. The Bible says God gave us these appetites, these hungers, these passions for our good in even greater ways for our enjoyment. But here's the problem. Number two, our passions can get the best of us. And we're gonna see that in the life of James. As we go out hunting for that which will satisfy, a choice needs to be made. In my hunt, in my pursuit, of satisfying my desires, my passions, my appetites, I've gotta make a decision. Will I seek it out in a self-centered way or will I seek it out in a God-centered way? And every one of us is going to ask that question whether we know it or not. We're gonna answer that question and say, I'm gonna fulfill this in a self-centered way or I'm gonna fulfill it in a God-centered way. Here's what James shows us. Filling it in a self-centered way is not the way to follow Jesus. And so notice a couple times in James' life where his passions gets the best of him. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter nine. Luke chapter nine And in Luke chapter nine, we have the first of two episodes where James allows his passions to get the best of him. In Luke chapter nine, we're gonna start in verse one to get a context of what's going on. It says that Jesus called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. He says to them, starting in verse three, take nothing with you, no staff, no bag, no bread, Uh, nor money, and don't even take two tunics with you. And he says, whatever house you enter, stay there. If they receive you, uh, preach to them and then depart. And then he says in verse 5, and this is important to what we're going to see later on in the chapter, and wherever they do not receive you, they reject you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them if you write in your Bibles, what you may want to say is, if someone rejects you for the gospel's sake, let it go. Let it go. Leave it alone and let it go. So James hears this, and not even a chapter later, we're still in the same chapter, chapter 9, we see starting in verse 52... That Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. If you don't know, Samaritans hated the Jews and the Jews hated Samaritans. And uh, there was a lot of animosity between them. And so the Samaritan village rejects Jesus. And it says in verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem because Jesus was a Jew The Samaritans didn't like him because he was heading to Jerusalem to worship God in Jerusalem. The Samaritans want nothing to do with Jesus and his gospel and his disciples. Enter James. And when his disciples James and John saw that, James said, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and kill him? That's passion misguided. Jesus has just said, if people reject you for the gospel's sake, let it go. But because he's so fiery, because he is so passionate, James allows his passions to get the best of him. Him and his brothers say, hey, Jesus, just say the word, and we'll kill them all. We will seek and destroy for you. Some of you and some of us have allowed our passion and our zeal for Jesus to send us down the wrong path. You're like, well, how how can that be? Here, James could say, but guys, listen, village. They rejected Jesus. And those who reject Jesus deserve death. But notice what Jesus says. If you've got a King James, New King James, it'll be right there. If not, this part of the verse is footnoted because it's not in all the manuscripts. But it says this, For the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. You see, your passions, even your zeal for Jesus, when it is not guarded and guided by Jesus, can get the best of you. It can send you to do the exact wrong things at the wrong time. James wanted to light people up because they rejected the gospel. James' passion had gotten the best of him. And it's a great time and moment for us to ask the question, have your passions gotten the best of you? Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20 for a moment. Matthew chapter 20. And in Matthew chapter 20, enters James's mom. Now, we know a lot about James' dad. He's the son of Zebedee. But what about his mom? Many Bible scholars believe that Salome, one of the closest female associates of Jesus, is James' mom. Salome is one of the women that is at the cross when Jesus is crucified. And so it is by no doubt that when Jesus says to James' brother, John, who's at the foot of the cross... Take Mary, my mother, into your home. What she's, what he's asking for is, I want you to take my mom into the house of Zebedee, into the house of Salome. So Salome and Jesus were close. They even had what many believe to be a, a, a familial relationship. That is, they were probably distant relatives. And so the twelve are gathered together. And notice in verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus, and they, she came up with her sons, James and John. And kneeling before him, James's mom asked Jesus for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And James's mom said to her, Say that these two sons of mine, James and John, are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Let's stop there. L- listen. Salome is the first helicopter mom. She's the first child-centered parent of the Bible. She's enamored by her kids. and, And let's face it, Jesus had picked her two teenage sons. And she, no doubt, had gotten on her Facebook page and made sure everybody knew that Rabbi Jesus had picked her teenagers. They made God's honor roll. They were the valedictorian and salutatorian. They were the MVPs. And she wants to make sure this doesn't just happen for a short time, but that this process happens for all of eternity. What she's saying is, Jesus, create a little space so that my sons can get some of your spotlight. That's what she's asking. I want my boys to have some of your glory. Jesus responds. And he says the following. He says, you don't know what you're asking. And then he goes to the two young boys, the two teenagers, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? And notice that both James and John said, we are able. What James is saying, we'll we'll just focus in on James here. What James is saying is this, Jesus, I can play the main part in your story. I can be the star in your show. Even more than that, James is saying with his brother, Jesus, whatever you can face, I can face. Whatever you can do, I can do. Whatever God's got in his plan for you, we can accomplish it as well. Listen to me, my friends. This passage shows the most arrogant and prideful approach. Peter can't even shake a stick at this kind of pride and arrogance. And why give a little bit of a pass is they're two teenage boys. They're young guys. They don't understand what they're saying. I can't tell you how many times as a young person I said things that I know now there was no way I could accomplish. And so here, Peter and James, I'm sorry, James and John say to Jesus, we can do it. Now notice what Jesus is going to say is, you want to be great in my kingdom, you need to be willing to suffer and you need to be willing to serve. Because the ten other guys get indignant, and rightly so, and Jesus says, Man, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over. They exercise authority, but it won't be like this among you. Listen to me, my friends. You and I cannot be the stars of the show. These two young ladies that just went through the declaration of baptism declared Jesus in one symbol Jesus, you're it. I'm not they forsook their main character energy and pointed it to Jesus. They said, Jesus, you're it. Jesus, you're always it. Jesus, you will forever be it. And a follower of Jesus says that again and again and again. But what about our passions? What about our desires? What about our appetites? A follower of Jesus Christ knows and recognizes that our passions can be good, that our passions can get the best of us. But thirdly, that our passions must be guided by God. We live in a time in a society, my friends, where because we feel something, we believe, therefore, we deserve it that if we have some sort of passion or some sort of desire, or some sort of appetite, that what it means is it must be fulfilled the way we want it to be. This is no greater scene than in our sexuality, which is a gift from God, given to us for our enjoyment for a purpose but our society says if i have sexual passion sexual desire sexual appetites then what that means is i can do with it whatever i want but the bible says no this gift has been given to you with a framework by which you are to enjoy it for your good and for the glory of god And followers of Jesus Christ say, I have passions, and they are good passions, and they're gifts from my heavenly Father who loves me, but I need to use them as God has directed, as God has guided. So God must guide our passions. This leads to the second point and it's much shorter than the first point and it is a reminder that what James's life tells us and reminds us of is not only who we are but what we're all about. What are we all about? Are we gonna be like James in his early part of his life where it was all about him? And listen, by the way, he didn't learn this on his own. It was baked into his mom's life, which is a reminder, parents, if you aren't careful, if I'm not careful, if we give our children everything they want, they will grow up thinking the world revolves around them. Also, oh, you want to do this, and you want to spend that, we'll, we'll spend whatever, we'll invest whatever time and energy into your lives. Brothers and sisters, you want to raise up followers of Jesus Christ, you tell your kids the world isn't theirs. It's God's. And even more than that message, you live that out and show them that the world isn't yours either. It's God's, that we were bought with a price that our bodies are not our own. They are God's and our passions and our desires and our appetites must be funneled and must be guided by Jesus. To answer this question of what we're all about, we've gotta ask four very quick questions. Number one, what excites you? What excites you? What are you most passionate about? What gets you out of bed? Now remember, it. they're not bad things. If it's your job that gets you out of bed, it's not a bad passion. If what gets you out of bed is your kids, if what gets you out of bed is is even uh, the ability to make money, if the uh, opportunity to, to serve people, whatever it is, whatever excites you, it's probably a good thing. God probably gave it to you for good, but you gotta ask the question, what is it that excites me? What is it? Let's identify that. So you have difficulty doing that? Do this test. Where do I invest most of my calendar? That is most of my time. Where do I spend most of my checkbook? How do I invest in my conversations? Your time, your treasure, and your talking. That's where you'll find your passion. And once you identify it, you have to ask the question, is God guiding it? Is God guiding it? So the next question is, who's examining me? Notice in both of the stories that we saw in James, Jesus rebukes James. And let me ask all of us, including myself this morning, when was the last time you allowed Jesus to rebuke maybe how you're using your passions? To challenge them. That Jesus might say, hey, what I gave you is good. It's for your enjoyment. It's for your good. But it's become altogether more about that than it is about me. When was the last time you looked at your calendar, you looked at your checkbook, you looked at your conversation and asked this question? Jesus, are you okay with it? Jesus, do you approve that this is how I'm using these gifts you've given me? The third question we have to ask is, what kind of spiritual enthusiasm do I have? Listen, I'm passionate about, very passionate about some things. I'm passionate about my wife and my marriage. I'm passionate about my three sons and, and our family. I'm passionate about this church I'm passionate about the business that God has given me in the catering world. I'm passionate about that, and yes, those things take up a lot of my calendar, my checkbook, and my conversation. And those things are all good. There's nothing wrong with any of those passions. But what I have to ask is this. Do those passions transcend my passion for Jesus? That's what Jesus is about to transform in James' life. Because if those good passions are only used for me, then they've become my God. And really, I've become my own God because everything is self-serving. I'm the main character but it does me great good and it gives God great glory when I take my marriage and I take my family and I take my church and I take my business and I funnel and guide those things and I say this, how do I do those things for your glory, God, not my own? And so where's my spiritual enthusiasm? Am I passionate about the things that God wants me to be passionate about? Here's what's amazing, in Mark chapter one, when James is called, when this young teenage guy is called, just look in the text in Mark chapter one, you will see he left that which was familiar, he left his family, he left uh, finances, he left his father's business and a settled future, and he immediately followed Jesus you want to know if your passions are placed in the right place ask this question if Jesus was to ask me to leave those passions would I do so immediately would I give them up immediately this begs the final question as to what extent will I go for Jesus in Acts chapter 12 we'll find out there's not much written about James but what we find out is James is transformed by Jesus and from the point of calling in Mark to these terrible, disappointing moments in Luke and Matthew, we see that James got it. And James is transformed. James no longer is about himself, but he's about Jesus. And after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, James, like the other disciples, goes and preaches Jesus because Jesus is the main character in James's life, and he preaches to whoever no matter what may fall in his life. And one day in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he's preaching Christ. And by the edict and command of King Herod, a man comes up to James and stabs him to death for preaching Christ. This man who was so focused in on himself that the lights would be on him, that he would be the main character in God's story, was changed and transformed that he was willing to die for Jesus. Now, it's probably a far-flung idea that any time soon you or I would be asked to die for our faith. But Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, if anybody wants to follow me, remember that's the title of this series, if anyone wants to follow after me, they must deny themselves. What are we denying? Maybe our passions for ourselves. And take up the cross, which was a death sentence. Maybe there's some things that need to die in our lives. So that God can take the passions and the desires and the appetites and redirect them for our good and for his glory. James got it. And James said, whatever I got to do for you, Jesus, I'm willing to do even if it means I've got to die. Because James understood this. Without Jesus, he would never find what his passions were looking for. St. Augustine said this 400 years after James' life. Our heart is restless. Our passions are restless. Our appetites are restless. Our desires are restless until they find their rest in Jesus. Jesus doesn't want to take away your passions. He wants to redirect them. And he wants to redirect them so that they may be a blessing to you and to others. So build your life on that. Build your life as James did, allowing God to transform your passions and desires so that Jesus may get the glory of being the main character of this epic story. Amen?